yourselves. To which you should be asking, well, how can this be? Because what God has done for us. Beloved, I would ask you to find your seats and as you were doing so, uh, to prepare to join me in prayer this morning. Let's set our affections upon Christ now and let's go to God in prayer in his name. Our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we stand in awe of you this morning. For we know that in you we live and move and have our being. You give to all mankind life and breath and everything. We were created by you. We exist for you. And our greatest joy is found in you. And so we would be a people who would join together with the psalmist this morning, asking that the words of the psalmist would echo in our hearts. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants our soul for you, O God. Our soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall we come and appear before God? We ask that this would be the truth of our hearts. And where it is not, we would ask this morning that you would grant us repentance, that you would show us, Father, the utter bankruptcy of living apart from you, that you would reveal to us, Lord Jesus, how you are precious and glorious and holy and magnificent and how you sustain us and uphold us that we might serve you. And Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would wean us off of the poisonous pleasures of this world and that you would leave us enthralled in I suppose that we would ask in a lot of ways the same things for our brothers and sisters at Grace Baptist Church this morning. We pray for Pastor Bill and the congregation that you would cause them to increase in their love for Christ and their love for the lost. We continue as well to pray for our friends just next door, those residents of Royal Columbian, that you would grant to them spiritual encouragement as well as health and safety. We also lift up before you the work of Grace Clinic that you would enable them, we ask, to provide both physical and spiritual well-being uh, to the patients that they see. Your word also instructs us to intercede for those who are in authority over us. And so we pray this morning specifically for the city of Pasco council members. May these men and women carry out their duties with honor and integrity, and may their service bring good to our community. We also think of Mike and Cecilia Palm, missionaries serving in Papalote, Mexico. Help them to get settled back in down there and, and cause them to be ever faithful and fruitful in their labors. We would also pray for the team from, Rede from Redeeming Grace that is, that is planning to head down there just another month or so. We pray that you would make their path straight as they seek to come alongside the Palms and those in Northern Light Ministries. And then, Father, we would be so bold as to pray for the people of Papalote, that you would draw them to yourself through the faithful proclamation of your gospel, so much so that you would gather to yourself sons and daughters and that you would glorify your son as the savior of sinners. As we think now about ourselves, about our own local congregation, we pray that you would cause our love to abound more and more. Christ has told us that the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so we pray, cause us to grow in our love for one another. But 
but by that we do not mean a silly, shallow, sentimental love. Rather, we desire a love that is mingled with knowledge and all discernment, that we would be a people who approve what is excellent, and thereby we'd be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So until that day, and until the day of Christ, cause the fruit of the gospel to be evident in our midst. Give us then love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Work in our hearts in such a way so that we would grow in our knowledge of you and our obedience to you and our love for you and our joy in you. And let us not settle for anything less. Open our hearts to one another as well. Open our homes to one another. We, we pray that the Holy Spirit would cause us to see that, that hospitality, opening our homes and, and sharing meals and encouraging one another and, and folding each other into our lives, help us see how important this all is to being a Christian. And then give us the strength to put one foot in front of the other and to do it. We also bring before you the elders of this congregation, Pastor Justin and Dave and myself. Leave us not to ourselves in this work, but grant to us a renewed energy and love to shepherd the flock of Christ. We also bring before you the many physical needs that we have as a people. We ask and we seek and we knock, Father. Some of us need jobs. Others need strength to endure nasty diseases. Some are chasing little ones around the house, and still more are working really, really long hours at the office. And so this morning we look to you, asking that you would uphold us and that you would sanctify us even through all of these situations. At the same time, we can't help but think of Jonathan and the whole Perry family. We know that you have ordained all things, including this young man's cancer. And we also know that you accomplish your purposes through means. And so we pray that through our prayers and through doctors and through medicine and through treatments, we pray that you would not only extend the life of this man, but that you would save his soul and that you would bring encouragement to his entire family. Speaking of saving souls, we would also be so bold as to ask you that you would give to Redeeming Grace a heart for the lost. That we would feel in our bones a burden for those who are perishing around us. And that you would give to this church, to all of us, a spirit of zeal for evangelism. So we pray to that end. We pray that you would help us to pray to that end. To see that those you bring into our lives, that they are made in your image, and that apart from trusting in Christ, that they will die and that they will spend eternity in hell. These are uncomfortable realities that we often push to the peripherer, and we pray that you would awaken us to these realities and that you would then put feet to our faith. And now, fathers, we turn to the reading and the preaching of your word we pray for your Holy Spirit to come and to give us a love for your word, to cause us to hear your word and to believe your word and to live in light of your word. We ask all of these things of you, Father, in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. Do so for our good and for your glory. And all of God's people said together, Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, please open in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. 
Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we are going to pick up where we left off last time, and that means we're going to find ourselves looking at verses 6 through 9. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And as you are finding that in your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in your hearing, beginning in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Beloved, find your seats, please. In, in recent times, we've seen something of a boom in terms of discovering more about your ancestry. Uh, I'm sure that you are more than aware of this, but there is no shortage of companies out there who, for a small fee and with a little of your DNA, will be able to tell you all about your family tree. And don't get me wrong, there is something that is altogether wonderful about that. To know where you come from. To know something about your history. But let me ask you this. For a moment, set aside your physical ancestry for a second. Set aside what continent you hail from. Who your great-great-grandparents were. Set aside what color your skin is, what your last name is, what country your forefathers called home. Set aside all of that for a moment. And let me ask you instead something like this. What does your spiritual family tree look like? Because in the grand scheme of things, your spiritual ancestry is actually of far more importance than your physical. Maybe I could frame it just a little bit differently, and, and this will be the thrust, really, of our passage this morning. The question is not so much, how did I become a Damarel? But more significantly, how do I become part of God's people? Beloved, how do we enter into the new covenant? How do we become adopted into God's family and come to share in the inheritance that God has for his church? Christian, how is it that you and I can be declared right in God's sight and be fully accepted before him? And the answer to those questions, the only answer is solely on account of faith. And there's full stop. No equivocation. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we become part of God's people and therefore stand right in God's sight. 
and redeeming grace. This is Paul's point here in Galatians 3, and we should add it is really Paul's point throughout not just Galatians 3, but the entirety of this whole letter. I would remind you that, that the, the, those to whom Paul is writing, uh, this was at one time a healthy and thriving group of young churches in Galatia. But that was then and this is now. They are now being plagued uh, by a set of false teaching. And this false teaching, we learn from Galatians 1, 8, and 9, is cyanide to the soul. So what is it that makes this such a dangerous and destructive and devilish lie? Well, here it is. The lie is this, that you and I are made right in God's sight, not solely and exclusively on account of what God does for sinners in Jesus Christ, but actually, the buck comes to stop with us. Which means that our being right before God and being brought into God's family, it is not owing to grace, but law. It's not actually about faith, but works. And that lie, church, comes straight from the pit. And so in the face of this lie, this insidious, ugly lie, the Apostle Paul invites these fledging churches to open their Bibles and to actually open their Bibles to the beginning, to go all the way back to Genesis to meet the father of faith, to meet Father Abraham. And here in Galatians 3, Father Abraham is Exhibit A. And as Exhibit A, Paul wants to hammer home two truths about Abraham. The first is this. Abraham was justified. Let me say that again. Abraham was justified. That's the point there in verse 6. It says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, so you step back and well, what do we know about Abraham? Well, we know, among other things, that he was righteous. Or, if you, if you want to use some slightly different language, Abraham was just. And remember, this idea of being just, or being righteous, or being justified, that idea, that concept, that language, it all basically means this, to be right in God's sight. When it comes to God's holiness and God's perfection and his law, right, to be righteous or just means that we are holy and perfect with respect to God's law. Justification means the gavel of God's justice has dropped. We've been acquitted of our sins. We are vindicated. We are declared just. That's the idea of justification or righteousness here. And Paul's point, at least thus far, is simply this. Abraham was just. No one disputes that. No one disputes that. Certainly not those false teachers in Galatia. Everyone, at least so far, can agree on this point, that Abraham was righteous. The question then is this, and this is where Paul will turn the screw. It's not just that Abraham was righteous. How did he get that way? What did he do? 
how was Abraham declared right in God's sight? And the answer to that pivotal and life-giving question, it comes, at least through the eyes of the Apostle Paul, by making a somewhat simple observation. Put your eyes again on verse 6. I say that because in Galatians 3.6, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, specifically Genesis 15.6. But to understand this passage in its context, we actually need to back up just a little bit back to Genesis 12. Because in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to Abraham both a people and a place. That was the promise. A people and a place. That's Genesis chapter 12. By the time you get to Genesis 15, Abraham has neither. Abraham <clears throat> has neither. His wife Sarah is completely barren. No people. And rather than having a place, Abraham is a wandering nomad. And so, Abraham raises this very issue in Genesis 15. Abraham says to God in verse 3, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, you promised me a people, but I don't have any people, so I'm going to have to have one of my servants be that people. Is, is that what we're talking about here? God responds by bringing Abraham outside of his tent, and God says to Abraham, verse 5 of Genesis 15, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then God says, so shall your offspring be. Now that's Genesis 15. And again, just so that we're all on the same page, Abraham has no children. His wife is old, like really old. And he's even older and so the whole people and place thing, it's looking pretty flimsy at this point, to put it mildly. Nonetheless, the eyes of Abraham, as they lift up to the stars above, and Abraham sees all of these stars, and he hears God's promises, God says this, I'm going to make from you a people that is innumerable, just like these stars. Abraham's response, enter perhaps the most important passage in all of the Old Testament, Genesis 15, 6, the passage that Paul quotes here in Galatians 3, 6, and he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him as righteousness. So here's the point. This is why Paul references this account here in Genesis. In Genesis 15:6, Abraham is declared just or righteous in God's sight. But the act of circumcision, mind you, this is what the false teachers in Galatia are requiring of Christians if they really want to be right in God's sight. That does not enter the picture. Circumcision does not enter the equation at all until Genesis 17. 
So keep up with me for a second because I, I don't want to lose you. Here is something technical that they teach you in seminary. Genesis 15 is before Genesis 17. I know that's huge, right? That's what 40 grand gets you. Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, and he's righteous. That's long before Genesis 17 and circumcision. And it's that bell that Paul is ringing in Galatians 3. Abraham was accepted right in God's sight all the way back in Genesis 15, long before he had been circumcised. And the reason, and again, Genesis 15, 6 goes out of its way, the reason that Abraham was accepted right in God's sight was simply because he believed God. Which means, please hear this, the accent then is not placed upon Abraham's works. We're not talking about his circumcision here. We're not talking about his obedience. We're not talking about his doing. We're not talking about anything that he did. His righteousness was based simply on the fact that he had faith in God and his promises. Now this is patently true of Abraham. But redeeming grace, let's be very clear, that Abraham is not put before us here in Galatians 3 as some distant figure from the past who has no relevance to us today. The point is that Abraham and his justifying faith, it does not, I repeat, does not belong in a museum somewhere under the protection of plexiglass. It is actually for us. Or to go out from a different direction, as I said earlier, Abraham is exhibit A, that's true, but he's not just an exhibit here, he is also an example. As the church's spiritual forefather, we too are to follow Abraham's footsteps by believing God and his promises. Or if we were to narrow the lens and zoom in just a little bit, just as Abraham believed God's gospel, so too we are to believe God's gospel. And just as Abraham was declared right in God's sight on account of believing God's gospel, well, church, so too we are declared right in God's sight simply by believing God's gospel. This cannot be overstated. This is never the time to pump the brakes. This is all gas. You have to understand, brothers and sisters, you have to know deep in your soul that the only way that you and I will ever stand right in God's sight is if we follow Abraham in the exact same way. That is to say, not by our doing. It's got nothing to do with whether or not you've been circumcised or we might say today baptized. It's not whether or not you've kept this law or cleaned up your act over here. Your justification is not contingent upon how many hours a day you pray or how many chapters of the Bible you read. Your justification does not hinge upon whether or not you grew up in a Christian home or you attended catechesis or you lived a good and decent and moral life. The answer to all that is no. How was Abraham counted just? 
he trusted God. That is to say, he heard the promises of God and he simply believed them. Well, likewise, brothers and sisters, that is what we are called upon to do. We are called to trust Christ. Now, I would remind you that this is nothing new. Paul, in a lot of ways, has been hammering this nail throughout Galatians. But it is worth pointing out that it has reached something of a fever pitch at this point. You might remember from two weeks ago, we heard Paul question the Galatian churches. He asked them in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, how is it that you became a Christian? Was it because you worked really hard at it? Did you earn it? Did you check all of the right boxes and, and therefore achieve some special status? No. You did not receive the Spirit, Galatians 3.2, by works of the law, but by faith. Paul presses further, though. In the very next verse, Galatians 3.3, we read, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You say, sure, you started the Christian life by faith. That's true. But will you now grow and mature as a Christian by what you do? Paul is really leaning into this. He, he wants them and us to see that the Christian life finishes exactly the same way that it starts. It commences with faith. It continues by faith. And it will be completed through faith. You will not be perfected or mature or grow or anything as a Christian by your brute force, by your so-called self-discipline, by your will power. On the contrary, it is all by faith. From beginning to end, we become Christians by faith and we grow as Christians through faith. Know then, verse 7, know this, you Galatian churches who are tempted to look to your circumcision. Know this redeeming grace, you who are tempted to look in the mirror. Know then, verse 7, that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Christian, you were brought into God's family. You are made part of the church. You are declared right in God's sight. How? By faith. So that's how you know if Abraham is really your father. Remember, Jesus said something similar. <laughs> we can make these rocks uh, cry out. You see, it, it's got nothing to do with the blood flowing through your veins. It's got nothing to do with where you were born. It's got nothing to do with what your DNA reveals. To be related to Abraham physically or ethnically 
it is of no value, zero, absolutely none in the new covenant. The only thing that matters is your spiritual DNA. Are you a son or daughter of Abraham? If you are, it is not owing to law, but grace. It's not by your works, but by faith. Know then, verse 7 again, be utterly convinced in your heart of hearts that it is those, verse 7, of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, I can't at this juncture not mention that children's song that perhaps some of you grew up singing. You know what I'm talking about? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. That song's silly, and it gets really silly really fast. But that part of it, at least, is rock-solid gospel truth. We are Abraham's children. Why, you ask? Because, like our Father, we have faith in God and His promises. In fact, we could even press it one step further. We are Abraham's children not just because we have his faith. We are Abraham's children because we believe the same gospel that Abraham believed. That's what verse 8 says. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Don't miss this. One of the initial promises to Father Abraham comes from Genesis chapter 12, which is quoted here at the end of verse 8. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So, so the gospel promise of you and I being right in God's sight, remember verse 8, foreseeing God would justify, declare right the Gentiles by faith. The point that Paul is making here is this includes this promise, not just one people, one group, one ethnicity. It includes all the nations, all the world. That's the point. And the linchpin is all the nations, including those gathered in the churches in Galatia, as well as those who were gathered here this morning, the only way that anyone can ever be right in God's sight is through faith in Jesus Christ. The same faith that Father Abraham had. Now, in an effort to be crystal clear, let me pause and address two questions or two issues. The first concerns righteousness, the second faith. Let's make sure there's no confusion. I want to make sure we're, we're all on the same page. When it comes to righteousness, the question is this. What kind of righteousness are we talking about? What's the nature of this righteousness that is spoken of here in Galatians 3 that is secured in the blood of Christ and promised to us in the gospel? Paul, again, quoting Genesis 15, 6, speaks of Abraham being counted as righteousness. So what, what's he talking about? What's this righteousness? There are at least three possibilities. There is inherent righteousness. There is infused righteousness. And there is imputed 
righteousness. Inherent righteousness speaks of something you or I are born with. It's a part of who we are. It's built into us. But of course, we know that's not the righteousness that is being spoken of here at all, is it? And it is certainly not the righteousness that is promised to us in Christ. We know this because if we are honest for ourselves, even for a moment, we will know that none of us are inherently righteous. In fact, the ugly truth is quite the opposite, actually. It's not that we are inherently righteous. It is that we are inherently unrighteous. We are born sinners. And because we are born sinners, we are born with the stain of sin and guilt and shame upon our souls. This is why, of course, we all stand so desperately in need of God's grace. Because by nature, we do not stand right in God's sight. So that's not it. Then you have this idea of infused righteousness. This is the view of the Roman Catholic Church, and unfortunately this disease has infected not a few evangelicals. Infused righteousness is the idea that God, through the sacrament of baptism, infuses righteousness into us. That is to say, he, he puts it into us. But, this is a huge but, one that spans heaven and hell, this so-called infused righteousness must be maintained. So the idea is that God pours grace into our lives at baptism. He gives us righteousness. But to be truly righteous on the last day, we have to keep this righteousness up. We have to maintain it. We have to continue to, to plug away on that spiritual treadmill and do what God would have us to do. This is why, and if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you will know this, this is why there is zero assurance in Roman Catholic dogma. This is why if you actually talk to not just someone that like, is a part of the Roman Catholic Church on Christmas or Easter, but if you actually talk to someone who is a practicing Roman Catholic, you will know that they can never be certain of their standing before God. In fact, to have assurance in Roman Catholic theology is the height of arrogance and presumption. And think about it. At least they're consistent at this point. How can you truly have assurance of your salvation if at the end of the day it relies upon you? Have any of us really done all we can do? Have any of us fully cooperated with the grace of God? I know I haven't. And I suspect I'm not alone. That brings us then to imputed righteousness. Imputation is to have something credited to you. In this case, we're talking about the very righteousness of Christ. His perfect life lived under the law of God. It is counted or credited or imputed to you and I the moment we believe the gospel. So stay with me. This is important. This righteousness is not mine. It's not mine in the sense that it comes from me. It's not my righteousness 
because it is not something that I myself have worked up or achieved. It is a righteousness from another. Luther was fond of referring to this as an alien righteousness. Now, by that, Luther did not mean some green Martian. That's not how they spoke of alien back then. He simply meant that this righteousness, it's not generated by me. It does not arise up from within me, and it is not the result of me. It's not about my works or my deeds or my anything. It is an alien righteousness in the sense that it comes from outside of me. In this this sense, it comes from Christ. And it is on that basis, and that basis alone, that God declares sinners saints. And I trust at this point that God has given you ears to hear. Because this is not just good news, brothers and sisters. This is glorious news. This is life-giving news. Think about this. All the righteousness that you and I will ever need to actually get to heaven and to stand right in God's sight, it is already ours. We've got it right now. And not because you hopped on that spiritual treadmill and got all those notches in your spiritual belt. It has been imputed to us by grace alone. Go back to Abraham for a second. Think about him. Was he actually righteous? I mean, personally, because of who he was, was he himself righteous? (laughs) Just read Abraham's story. Not a chance. Abraham's experience is just like ours. You look in the mirror long enough. You root through those deep crevices in your heart long enough, and you know what you're going to discover? You're a stinking wretch. You were a wretch. You are a wretch. And I can assure you of this. You're going to be a wretch tomorrow. But like Abraham, we are counted just. On account of Christ, we are declared to be just even though experientially we are unjust. I can put it like this. My wife can attest to the fact that she is married to a sinner. But as far as the courtroom of heaven is concerned, I am 100% just. This forces us to ask the second question, to face the second issue. How is this righteousness imputed to us? Remember, if it is inherent righteousness, we're simply born with it. We just wake up and it's there. If it is infused righteousness, then we must cooperate with it, maintain it, and add to it. But if this righteousness is imputed, if if I can be so crude, how do we get it? The answer is by faith. We receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness by faith. But, and stay with me here. When verse 6 speaks of Abraham believing God. Or down in verse 8 when we read that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Or verse 9, those who are of faith. What exactly are we talking about here? What kind of faith is this? What's the nature of this faith? 
need to be very clear at this point. Scripture is speaking of not just faith. Not just believing something really hard. Not just wishing something were true. And certainly not like this thing that's all popular today where we have faith in faith. But biblical faith, saving faith, justifying faith is faith in Christ Jesus. And by that, by faith, what we mean biblically is that we receive Him, we rely on Him, and we rest in Him. That is faith. i got a harp here. Let me try and shed a little bit of light on this for you. Something I've noticed whenever I do evangelism, whether it's street evangelism or personal evangelism or the highways and hedges, it's, it's not uncommon to be engaged with certain types of, of, of people. And some of them, there's this whole class of people that you, will, that you will encounter when you do evangelism who will say stuff like this, oh yeah, I, I believe, I just need to believe more. Or, oh yeah, I, I just got to have more faith. George Michael has catechized more people than the Christian church has. I'm not going to sing that song. I already sang once to my wife's chagrin. You talk to people on the street. Yeah, I just got to have more faith. I believe. I'm just really trying to really believe. You know what you find what's very common in all this talk about faith? There is no mention of Jesus Christ. There is no mention of who he is or what he has done. There is only, in our spiritual, not religious world, only this very vague, nebulous concept of faith. As if faith is our Savior. But church, we have to understand something. Faith, by definition, does nothing. This is the point, isn't it? This is why the Scriptures constantly contrast faith with works. Works does stuff. Faith does nothing. Let me up the ante. Faith doesn't atone for your sin. Faith doesn't die on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin. <laughs> How could it? Faith doesn't have flesh and bone to drive spikes through. Faith never kept the law of God. Faith never obeyed. Faith never acted and operated in a way to, to please God and earn justification. Faith does nothing. We can go so far as to say that faith is good and right and virtuous only insofar as faith's object is good and right and virtuous. Think with me for a moment of crossing an iced-over pond. On the one hand, you've got a man with iron-clad faith. He fears nothing. His faith is perfect and stalwart. He looks at that pond iced over. He knows he has to cross it. And so with impeccable faith, he wanders out onto that ice. Moments later, the ice breaks and he perishes. Then, on the other hand, you have a man with hardly any faith at all. He, too, must cross a frozen lake. This man's faith is weak. He is fearful. 
And so as he steps out onto that ice, he, he very slowly, inch at a time, moves. Eventually, he makes it all the way across that pond, dry as a bone. Here's the question. Who had more faith? Well, the first guy did, right? The guy who's now a popsicle. He had more faith. But the second guy, the one who had little faith, he is actually the one who is saved. Why? This is so important, biblically speaking. Because it is not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith. You see, it's not so much the quantity of our faith, but it's who or what is our faith in. It was not, I repeat not, the man's faith, however strong or weak it was, that held him up. What held up the man who crossed the lake? Well, it was the strength of the ice, wasn't it? His faith had no bearing whatsoever on it. Likewise, it is not our faith in faith, it is not our faith in us, and it is certainly not our faith in some weird, mystical, higher power. The only ice that will keep us dry is the thick glacier that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ who saves. It is Christ who redeems. It is Christ who pardons and imputes righteousness to us. It is Christ and Christ and more of Christ. You know what all this means? I'm going to say something that's going to sound wonky. Bear with me. Your faith doesn't save you at all. Your faith doesn't justify you. Faith doesn't redeem us. Faith doesn't forgive us. Faith doesn't fit us for heaven. Only Christ does. Faith is merely the way that we lay hold of Christ. Faith, as the Reformers taught us, is the empty hands that receive the fullness of Christ crucified for us. So this needs to be said, and this was true biblically, it was true during the time of the Reformation, and it is equally true today. When we speak of faith alone, when we speak of sola fide, that is shorthand, beloved. It's shorthand for faith alone in Christ alone. It's Christ who saves. So with that clarification, and by that I mean the imputation of Christ's righteousness that is credited to us by grace alone through faith alone, with that massive, miles-deep, rock-solid gospel foundation under us, with all of that, it leads to Paul's conclusion in verse 9. So then. Or we might say, in light of all of this. Or, because of what we've seen from Genesis 15, and Abraham, and his justifying faith. So then, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 9 is the punchline. Verse 9 is Paul going for the jugular. Set it in its context. To these predominantly Gentile churches scattered there in the region of Galatia. 
these same churches who are being vexed by these Jewish Pharisees requiring them to be circumcised in order to be right in God's sight, Paul announces, you Gentile Christians, if you have faith, then you are a descendant of Abraham. Think of how scandalous that is. That was true of those in Galatia trusting in Christ, and it is equally true of those today who are resting in Christ. We are parts of the family of God. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. Verse 7, not by birth, not by blood, and not by behavior. We are sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. Let's be clear. Physical birth doesn't make you a Christian. Only spiritual birth. Jesus Himself told us, you must be born again. Being part of a particular ethnic background doesn't make you in a special place or, or right with God. Not even if you happen to be Jewish. And your deeds and your activities and your works and your behavior, none of that will placate God or justify you in His sight, no matter how quote-unquote good you think you are. The only way that any of us can ever stand right in God's sight is if we follow in the footstep of Abraham. Which means that we are a people who are relentless in tearing up our resumes and instead, trusting entirely in God and in His gospel promises. Let's pray together this morning. Our gracious Father, we come before You this morning as those who are part of Your family, and we confess to You that it has nothing to do with us. We likewise confess to You that we are ever prone to think that it does have something to do with us. And so we pray you would purge the little Pharisees that, that live inside of our souls, that you would give us more of Christ, that you would create in us to be a, a humble people, a faithful people, a people who desire to commend the gospel and do good and who put no confidence in the flesh. We pray that you would do this so that Christ and Christ alone will be glorified in our midst. And we pray that that would be true not just here, but all across the Tri-Cities in our community, all across our state, our country, and the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.